Chapter Fifteen of Nothing of Importance by Bernard Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A certain man drew a bow at a venture. It was ten o'clock as I came in from the wiring party in front of Rue Albert, and at that moment our guns began. We were in Maple Redoubt. The moon had just set, and it was a still summer night in early June. "'Come and have a look,' I called to Owen, who had just entered the dugout. I could see him standing with his back to the candlelight, reading a letter or something. He came out, and together we looked across the valley at the shoulder of down that was silhouetted by the continuous light of gun flickers. Our guns had commenced a two hours' bombardment. "'No answer from the Bosch yet,' I said. "'They're firing on C-2, down by the cemetery.' Yes, I hardly noticed it. Our guns make such a row. By Jove, it's magnificent!" We gazed fascinated for a long time, and then went into the dugout where Edwards and Paul were snoring rhythmically. I read for half an hour, but the dugout was stuffy, and the smell of sandbags and the flickering of the candle annoyed me for some reason or other. Somehow, Derelicts, by W. J. Locke, failed to grip my attention. Owing to our bombardment there were no working parties, in case the Germans should take it into their head to retaliate vigorously, but at present there was no sign of that. I went outside again, and walked along Park Lane until I came to the Lewis gun position just this side of the corner of Watling Street. The sentry was standing up, gazing alert and interested at the continuous flicker of our shells bursting along the enemy's trenches. Lance Corporal Allen looked out of the dugout, and, seeing me, came out and stood by us. And together we watched, all three of us, in silence. Overhead was the continual screeching, whistling of the shells as they passed over, without pause or cessation. Behind was a chain of gun flickers the other side of the ridge and in front was another chain of flashes and a succession of bump-bump-bumps as the shells burst relentlessly in the German trenches. And where we stood, under the noisy arch, was a steady calm. "'This is all right, sir,' said Lance Corporal Allen. He was the N.C.O. in charge of this Lewis gun team. "'Yes,' said I. "'The artillery are not on short rations to-night. For always, through the last four months, the artillery had been more or less confined to so many shells a day. The officers used to tell us they had any amount of ammunition, yet no sooner were they given a free hand to retaliate as much as they wanted, than an order came cancelling this privilege. Tonight, at any rate, there was no curtailment. "'I believe this is the beginning of a new order of things,' I said, half-musing to myself. That is, I believe the Bosch is going to get lots and lots of this now. "'About time, sir,' said the sentry. "'Is there a push coming off?' said Lance Corporal Allen. "'I don't know,' I replied. "'But I expect we shall be doing something soon. It's quite certain we're going to get our three weeks' rest after this turn-in. The Brigadier Major told me so.' Corporal Allen smiled, and as he did so the flashes lit up his face. He was quite a boy, only eighteen, I believe, but an excellent N.C.O. 
He had a very beautiful though sensuous face that used to remind me sometimes of the satyr of Praxitel. His only fault was an inclination to sulkiness at times, which was perhaps due to a little streak of vanity. It was no wonder the maidens of Morlancourt made eyes at him, and a little girl who lived next door to the Lewis Gunn's billet was said to have lost her heart long ago. Tonight I felt a pang as I saw him smile. "'We'll see,' I said. "'Anyway, it's going to be a good show giving the Bosch these sort of pleasant dreams. Better than those one-minute stunts.' I was referring to a one-minute bombardment of Fricourt Wood that had taken place last time we were in the line. It was a good spectacle to see the wood alive with flames, hear our vicar's guns rattling hard behind us from the supports, and see the Germans firing excited green and red rockets into the air. But the retaliation had been unpleasant, and the whole business seemed not worth while. This continuous pounding was quite different. I went back and visited the other gun position, and spent a few minutes there also. At last I turned in reluctantly. I went out again at half-past eleven, and still the shells were screaming over. It seemed the token of an irresistible power, and there was no reply at all now from the German lines. The short summer nights made life easier in some respects. We stood two earlier, and it was quite light by three. As I turned in again, I paused for a moment to take in the scene. Davies had retired to a small dugout that looked exactly like a dog-kennel, and was not much larger. As Davies himself frequently reminded me of a very intelligent sheep-dog, the dog-kennel seemed most suitable. I heard him turning about inside, as I stood at the door of our own dugout. The scene was one of the most perfect peace. The sun was not up, but by now the light was firm and strong. Night had melted away. I went back and walked a little while along Park Lane, until I came to a gap in the newly erected sandbag parados. I went through the gap, and into a little graveyard that had not been used now for several months. And there I stood in the open, completely hidden from the enemy, on the reverse slope of the hill. Below me were the dugouts of 71 North, and away to the left those of the citadel. Already I could see smoke curling up from the cookers. There was a faint mist still hanging about over the road there, that the strong light would soon dispel. On the hillside opposite lay the familiar tracery of Redoubt A, and the white zigzag mark of Maidstone Avenue climbing up well to the left of it, until it disappeared over the ridge. Close to my feet the meadow was full of buttercups and blue veronica, with occasional daisies starring the grass and below, above, everywhere, it seemed, was the tremulous song of countless larks, rising, growing, swelling, till the air seemed full to breaking point. And there was not a sound of war. Who could desecrate such a perfect June morning? I felt a mad impulse to run up and across into no man's land, and cry out that such a day was made for lovers, that we were all enmeshed in a mad nightmare, that needed but a bold man's laugh to free us from its clutches. Surely this most exquisite morning could not be the birth of another day of pain. Yet I felt how vain and hopeless was the longing, as I turned at last, and saw the first slant rays of sunlight touch the white sandbags into life. "'What time's this working party?' 
asked Paul at four o'clock that afternoon. I told the sergeant major to get the men out as soon as they'd finished tea, I replied. About a quarter to five they ought to be ready. He will let you know, all right. Hullo, said Paul. What are you hulloing about? I asked. Paul did not answer. Faintly I heard a whee-oo, 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 that grew louder and louder and ended in a swishing roar like a big wave breaking against an esplanade and then whump, 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 whump. Four, four-twos exploded beyond the parados of Park Lane. Well over, said Edwards. I expected this, I answered. They've been too damned quiet all day, especially after the pounding we gave them last night. There they are again, I added. This time I had heard the four distant thuds, and we all waited. Whump, whump, crump. There was a colossal din. The two candles went out, and there was a shaking and jarring in the blackness. Then followed the sound of falling stuff, and I felt a few patters of earth all over me. Gradually it got lighter, and through the smoke-filled doorway the square of daylight reappeared. Genie laim pa, said I, as we all waited, without speaking. Then Edwards struck a match and lit the candles. All the table, floor, and beds were sprinkled with dust and earth. Then Davies burst in. Are you all right? we asked. Yes, sir. And you? Oh, we're all right, Davies, said I but there's a job for Lewis cleaning this butter up. At length we went outside, stepping over a heap of loose yielding earth, mixed up with lumps of chalk and bits of frayed sandbags. Outside the trench was blocked with debris of a similar kind. Already two men had crossed it, and several men were about to do so. It was old already. There was still a smell of gunpowder in the air, and a lot of chalk dust that irritated your nose. I think I'll tell the sergeant-major not to get the working party out just yet," I said to Paul. They often start like that and then put lots more over about a quarter of an hour later. And I sped along Park Lane quickly. As I returned I heard footsteps behind me. I looked round, but the men were hidden by a traverse. And then came tragedy, sudden and terrible. I have seen many bad sights, every man killed is a tragedy but one avoids and hides away the hideousness as soon as possible. But never, save once perhaps, have I seen the thing so vile as now. "'Look out!' I heard a voice from behind, and as I heard the shell screaming down, I tumbled into the nearest dugout. The shell burst with a huge crump, but not so close as the one that had darkened our dugout ten minutes before. Then again another four shells burst together, but some forty or fifty yards away. I waited one, two minutes, and then I heard men running in the trench. As I sprang up the dugout steps I saw two stretcher-bearers standing looking round the traverse, and then there was the faint whistling overhead, and they pushed me back as they almost fell down the dugout steps. "'Is there a man hurt?' I asked. "'We can't leave him.' "'He's dead,' said one, and as he spoke there were three more explosions a little to the left. "'Are you sure?' "'Aye,' said the stretcher-bearer, and closed his eyes tight. "'He's past our help,' said the other man. At last, after a minute's calm, we stepped out into the sunshine. 
I went round the traverse, following the two stretcher-bearers. And looking between them, as they stood gazing, this is what I saw. In the trench, half buried in rags of sandbag and loose chalk, lay what had been a man. His head was nearest to me, and at that I gazed fascinated, for the shell had cut it clean in half, and the face lay like a mask, its features unmarred at all, a full foot away from the rest of the head. The flesh was grey, that was all. The open eyes, the nose, the mouth, were not even twisted awry. It was like the fragment of a sculpture. All the rest of the body was a mangled mass of flesh and khaki. "'Who is it?' whispered a stretcher-bearer, bending his head down to look sideways at that mask. "'Find his identity disc,' said the other. "'It is Lance Corporal Allen,' said I. Then up came the regimental sergeant-major, and Owen followed him. They too gazed in horror for a moment. The sergeant-major was the first to recover. "'Hi, you fellows!' he called to two men. "'Get a waterproof sheet!' "'Come away, old man,' said I to Owen. In silence we walked back to the dugout, but my brain was whirling. A certain man drew a bow at a venture, I thought again. That was how it was possible. No man could keep on killing if he could see the men he killed. But who had fired that howitzer shell? A German gunner somewhere right away in Mamet's wood, probably. He would never see his handiwork, never know what he had done to-day. He would never see. That was the point. Had he known, he would have rejoiced that there was one Englishman less in the world. It was not his fault. We were just the same. What of last night's bombardment? The memory of Lance Corporal Allen, up by his gun position, gave me a quick, sharp pang. Had we not watched with glittering eyes the magnificent shooting of our own gunners? This afternoon's strafe was but a puny retaliation. Slowly it came back to me, the half-formed picture that had arisen in my mind the night of Davidson's death. A certain man drew a bow at a venture expressed it perfectly. It was splendid twanging the bow, feeling the fingers grip the polished wood, watching the bowstring stretch and strain, and then letting the arrow fly. That was the fascinating, the deadly fascinating side of war. That was what made it possible to carry on. I remember my joy in calling up the artillery in revenge for Thompson's death. And then again, whenever we put a mine up, how exhilarating was the spectacle! Throwing a bomb, firing a Lewis gun, all these things were pleasant. It was like the joy of throwing stones over a barn and hearing them splash into a pond, like driving a cricket-ball out of the field. But the arrows fell somewhere. That was the other side of war. The dying king leant on his chariot, propped up until the sun went down. The man who had fired the bolt never knew he had killed a king. That was the other side of war. That was the side that counted. What I had just seen was war. I leaned my face on my arm against the parados. Oh, this unutterable tragedy! Had there ever been such a thing before? Why was this thing so terrible? Why did I have this feeling of battering against some relentless power? death. There were worse things than death. 
there were sights, such as I had just come from, as terrible in everyday life, in any factory explosion or railway accident. There was nothing new in death. Vaguely my mind felt out for something to express this thing, so far more terrible than mere death. And then I saw it. Vividly I saw the secret of war. What made war so cruel was the force that compelled you to go on. After a factory explosion you cleared up things and then took every precaution to prevent its recurrence. But in war you did the opposite. You used all your energies to make more explosions. You killed and went on killing. You saw men die around you, and you deliberately went on with the thing that would cause more of your friends to die. You were placed in an arena and made to fight the beasts, and if you killed one beast there were more waiting, and more, and more. And above the arena, out of it, secure, looking down, the glittering eyes of the men who had placed you there cruel, relentless eyes, that went on glittering while the mouths expressed admiration for your impossible struggles, and pity for your fate. "'Oh, God, I shall go mad,' I thought, in the agony of my mind. I saw into that strange empty chamber which is called madness. I knew what it would be like to go mad. And even as I saw came the thought again of those glittering eyes, and the ruthless answer to my soul's cry, the war is utterly indifferent whether you go mad or not. Owen was standing waiting for me. I grew calm again, and turned and put my hand on his shoulder. Together we reached the door of the dugout. "'Oh, Bill,' he said, "'have you ever seen anything more awful?' "'Only once. No, not more awful. More beastly. Nothing could be more awful.' We told the others. "'Not Alan!' said Edwards. He was Lewis gun officer, and Alan was his best man. "'Not Alan!' he repeated. "'Oh, how will they tell his little girl in Morlancourt? What will she say when she learns she will never see him again?' "'Thank God she never saw him as we saw him just now,' I said. "'And thank God his mother never saw him.' "'If women were in this war, there would be no war,' said Edwards. I wonder, said I. End of chapter 15